Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. I have pushback to that Buddy the Elf thing. I think Cody should do it. So we're going to see. <laughs> I don't know where he is, but he needs to hear that. <laughs> hey, it's good to be with you. I'm Brian Wilmarth. I am uh, the, one of the pastors here. If we haven't met before, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you feel a welcome and uh, love to connect with you after the service, whether you want to come find me or stop by the connections desk. We'd love to meet you and connect with you that way. I have one more thing just to add to that uh, announcement video. Um, Today is the the final Sunday for Christmas Multiplied. So again, this is our initiative where we are helping to bless kids in our community who may not be able to have a good Christmas. And uh, we've been collecting gifts and and hopefully we want to bring all those this week to uh, all these kids or whatever. So if you are wanting to participate in that and you yet haven't, you still have one last quick chance. So if you want to either go grab a tag and quick buy something today or tomorrow, if we can get that like early this next week, we'll still have time to get it to the children's home. But if you also want to donate some financial resources, we're going to finish out the shopping and everything in the next day or two. So you can contribute that way as well and still participate. So if you kind of missed it and you're like, oh shoot, I still want to participate, you can. Um, you can do it in those ways. But today would be the great day for us to get all, the, all, the de- um, all of the gifts to come in and all that stuff. So just wanted to put that before you one last time. Thank you, church family, for the ways that you have blessed uh, the kids so far, both in years past and in this year. We're grateful to do that together. All right. If you would, let's join together in a word of prayer as we turn to the message. Lord, thank you so much that we get to gather, that we are with one another and with you. And God, um, as we enter the Christmas season, so often we we have moments of festiveness, of joy, and and remembering uh, why we celebrate Christmas because of you and your coming. But also, we might be walking in today, Lord, with heartache, with brokenness, with pain, God, would you meet us right where we are in whatever we're bringing with us into this room this morning? And God, I pray that we'd lay it at your feet. Whatever might be distracting or or pulling our attention away, whatever might be burdening for us, would we lay it at your feet? And would we put our eyes solely on you, Lord? I pray, God, that as we hear from you today, as we read your scriptures, would we see you clearly? Would we encounter you in a deeper way than we have? And would we be reminded of your character and your goodness? Thank you, Lord, for meeting us. Thank you for being with us. Thanks that we can gather. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is the Christmas season, so Merry Christmas, and uh, we're excited that we get to move towards Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the celebration of Christ's coming, his birth. And uh, we wanted to do a series where we dive a little bit deeper into Christmas, into Advent, the season of Advent, Christ's coming. And uh, what we want to do is we want to explore why, why Christ came. And so what we want to do is we want to answer that question. Why, why did Jesus come? And that's our hope for this series called Fulfilled. And we're calling it Fulfilled is because we're going to be looking back to the Old Testament, to these different texts or passages that, that point to Jesus' coming. 
Now, you might be able to come up with a few that you've heard at Christmas time, like Isaiah, you know, a son will be born, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders. Like, that one might be familiar to you. And yes, it's pointing forward to Jesus, his coming. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at some texts that maybe aren't usually Christmassy. Not usually, um, we don't usually look at these during the Christmas season, but they are loaded with significance. They help us see that here is why Jesus came. Here is what he came to fulfill. And so that's what we're going to do in this three-week series leading up to Christmas. And so we're going to tackle some of these passages that you might know, you may not know, but hopefully round out or help us understand why Jesus came. Now, you might hear all that. It's like, okay, that sounds kind of cool or whatever, but why do I really need to hear that? Like, what is it really that I'm going to take away? What difference is it going to make for my life rather than just talk about some cool things related to Christmas? Well, I want to put an idea before you, and I want to share something personal with you. I I think this idea is why we want to tackle this this way. We all face evil, sin, and death in our lives. We all face this, this kind of thing, this evil, this, this wrongness, things that do not belong. We're faced with our own brokenness, our own wrongdoing. We're faced with the reality of death in our lives. And this is actually pretty personal for us right now. Um, some of you know this, and I'm going to share uh, something personal with you. Some of you already know this, but many of you probably don't. Um, my wife's sister passed away this week. She was 30 years old. And she, uh, a few years ago, was diagnosed with Parkinsonism. It's kind of like Parkinson's disease, but a little bit different, but it has some of the same kind of characteristics. It's a neuromuscular disease. And, and we saw this coming, like um, her deterioration was, was building, and we just knew that there would come a day when, when it would happen. And, and even recently, we just saw some of those declines that, that started to emerge. But it was a little surprising for me. We didn't think it would be so soon. But we got the call on Tuesday that she had passed away. And so we got to be with my wife's family and uh, spend a few days with them. And and it was good to be together. Hard. There were tears. But we also see the hope of the Lord. And that is the reason why I want to share that story with you, just to share it, but also to point, this is why Jesus came. Because we all face these kinds of things in life. Maybe you resonate with that very specifically. You've had a loved one pass away, maybe even recently. And every time Christmas comes around, there's a lot of joy and festivity. But there's also the pain, the emptiness, the gap. Something isn't just quite right. You've lost a loved one and you feel that at Christmas time. Or maybe it's not quite you've lost a loved one, but you've lost the relationship with a loved one. Every Christmas, you know, families are gathering together and you notice the absence around your table. Or there's been hurt in relationship. You know, you might see someone, but things aren't just as they should be and you you just feel that tension, you feel the brokenness. There's the emptiness there. Or or maybe you just feel like you're struggling to make ends meet. Like every month it feels paycheck to paycheck. And then you get to Christmas. It's like, how am I going to enjoy Christmas with my family? And and it just feels like there's there's lack. I got to pay the heating bill or buy my kids a present at Christmas. 
we're faced with different versions of this in, in a variety of ways. And it might even be like in the bigger sense, like there are wars all around the world and, and there's famine, there's, there's people who, who don't have, like we are faced with evil. We're faced with sin. We're faced with death. And it comes into Christmas. Christmas is often joyful, but it doesn't always feel that way. Jesus' coming has something to say to that. See, the season of Advent, the season where we remember that Jesus came and we look forward to his coming, is one of longing. It's one of waiting. Jesus promises he's coming back, but things aren't as they should be, so we cry out, how long, O Lord? It is one of longing. But Jesus, in his coming, in his birth, makes a statement to the fact that we face evil, sin, and death. And that's what I want us to look at today. And so we're going to do that by looking at a familiar chapter, but not one we often turn to at Christmas. So I'm inviting you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Go to the beginning of your Bible. It's the first book. We're going to look at chapter 3. Now, I do want to remind us of a couple of things in chapter 1, so we're going to start there, but then we'll spend a good amount of time in chapter 3. And we're going to see how Jesus' birth, how his coming, helps us understand what he is fulfilling and how it responds to the fact of death, sin, and evil in the world. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start looking at a couple of verses real quick in chapter 1, just as a reminder. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He created the world. He designed it intentionally. He wanted it to be a certain way. And it's God, it's from him that everything was made. Then in verse 3, we get these words that God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke it into being. It came from him as as he's speaking out. It's like, here, I want light. And boom, there it is. And light is a powerful image at Christmas, right? We often think the light has come in the darkness. We are surrounded by darkness. And the birth of Christ is light into that. That's a powerful image that God runs with all the way through the scriptures. And so here, he's creating light. So verse 4, God saw the light was good, right? He's making everything. He's creating the heavens and earth. He's like, yeah, this is good. I'm making things. I'm creating the way that I want it to be. Light, this is good. And notice, he separated the light from the darkness. But then he goes on, he creates more and more and and goes through the cycle over and over until finally we get into verse 27. He's creating humanity. And so in verse 27, we read these words. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he made humanity. He made all of us and he made us in his image. And that's unique. We, we bear his image. We are his image bearers. And that is unlike anything else in creation. We are set apart because of this. And so because that's true, what does God say next? Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Rule, or excuse me, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. 
the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So not only does he create us in his image, but he gives us a job. He's like, I want you to rule over the creation. I want you to take care of it with me. I want you to steward it. I want you to help bring life. Be fruitful and multiply. Bring more life. This is what he wants. This is what he's asking of us. I want you to be my partners. Let's care and take, take the lead on creation together. Then in verse 31, after he's done this, we get these words. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Very good. There was morning, there was evening, the sixth day. He's saying, now, humanity's here, they're my image bearers. This, ah, this is very good. So this is creation. God created everything he created to be good. But you know how the story goes, right? We go to chapter three, skip a couple of chapters and things take a sour turn. So this good creation that God has made, things shift. So look at with me, verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. That word crafty, it means kind of deceitful and and kind of smart or whatever. This, as you're reading, it's like, wait a minute. This is a very good creation. God said so. But now we get this. A crafty creature? A serpent? You sense something's coming and it's not good. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you know, this is not what God said. And Eve confirms that in the next sentence. It's like, you can't eat of anything, right? No, 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 that's not true. But here, notice what he's doing. He's sowing doubt. He's twisting things, little by little. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now notice, Eve adds something here. If you go back where God says, like, Hey, I don't want you to eat of this tree, that's what he says. Don't eat of this tree. But he didn't say anything about touching it. But here, Eve is adding something. Because, you know, she's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of nervous around that. Like, I don't even want to go there. There's almost a little bit of that addition. But notice what happens next. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, here, he's like, no, 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 that's not true. God's holding out on you. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to have what he has. But notice, it's like, you will be like God. We've already seen. They are. They bear his image. They're already like God. They don't need anymore. God's already given them what they're going to get. Like, he's like, you're, you're, you're not, it's not enough yet. God's holding out on you. And what he's trying to do is subvert God's character. The trust that they're to have in the Lord, he's trying to take that away. Because when God put this tree and said, hey, I don't want you to eat of this one, that was an act of trust. There's not really anything magical about it. It's not like there's anything special. It's like, oh, you can't eat that tree. You just couldn't handle it. It It's like more, I just want you to trust me. And you're going to see that in just a second. So verse 6. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. That little insertion, that phrase there, desirable for gaining wisdom. She's like, I want to be like God. I want to know good and evil. I want to be able to decide. But God's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to eat the fruit to get that. I want to give that to you. I want you to be my partners. I'm going to show you how do we take care of it. We're going to do this together. I need you to trust me. But here what the serpent has done, he's taken that element away. Now she is looking for a way to get that wisdom on her own. And so what does she do? She reaches out and takes it. And I think that's a really important phrase. You're going to see that kind of hinted at throughout the Bible, this reaching out and taking, this, this movement of people to do it on our own terms. Where God's like, I want to give it to you. You need to receive it, not take it. But here, she's taking it. She's working at it for her own. She's deciding how things go. And what happens? She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. All of a sudden, you see, oh, like Adam's here. It's like, wait a minute, what was, what's he been doing? And he's kind of been hanging around, but not saying a word. And that is not how this was supposed to go. They were to be partners together and, and help one another trust the Lord. But here we see the woman being deceived, and apparently Adam's hanging around, and he's not saying anything, and he joins in. So verse 7. But then their eye, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So now here, they realize like, oh, our eyes are open. We see things a little bit differently, and they realize they don't trust one another anymore. And they want to hide. They want to cover up. And here is the beginning of things unraveling. So what happens next? God shows up. He's like, hey, where are you? And it's like, oh, we're hiding from you. Why? Because we're naked. Okay. Who told you you were naked? And then the blame game begins. It's like, oh, she did it. Or, no, 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 it's a serpent. And, and now things are just crumbling down. Trust is gone and relationships are fractured. And now the creation itself is beginning to unravel. And ultimately, God pronounces consequences. Because you've done this, here's what's going to happen. And he curses the ground itself. And sure enough, creation begins to fall apart. So what we see here in chapter 3 is that humanity, we as human beings, we succumb to sin. And that corrupts creation. It breaks everything. We fall prey to sin. We feel this desire. We want to attain wisdom in our own strength, our own way. We want to call the shots and we rebel against God. We want to do it our own way. Call that sin and it leads to corruption of God's good creation. Things fall apart. And this promise like, hey, if you eat this, then you're going to die. It happens. Death is now introduced into the world. These human beings, they're going to go and they're going to die. And generation after generation is going to come and they're going to go. They're going to die. Sin and death now exist in the world. 
we lose a family member because of this moment. Death happens because of this moment. We deal with fracturing in relationships. We deal with brokenness. We don't have what we need because of this moment. It all starts here. And each one of us, we contribute to the brokenness. And it continues to spiral and spiral. Sin is in the world because we want to do things our own way. And that's what Genesis 3 shows us. We're dealing with loss. We feel the pain at Christmas because of sin. But there is a glimmer of hope. And it's even in this text. You read chapter 3 and it just feels like, oh, it's all falling apart and, and there's nothing here to be gained. Like, but there's something. And we can miss it if we read a little too quickly. But I want you to look with me at verses 14 and 15. We're going to see that glimmer of hope. So here God is talking to the serpent. And he's saying like, okay, you've done wrong here. So here's what's going to happen. Here are the consequences for you. So verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Now, if you're reading this, you're kind of like, oh, things are going, and, and it's like, oh, there's some death happening here. But wait a minute. The serpent, the, the, the antagonist, the one who catalyzes all of this, his head's going to be crushed. The, the, the evil guy, the villain in the story, is just, there's been the promise that he's going to be defeated. There will be one who's going to crush his head. Like if you, if you kind of read through it, you can miss like this is, this is a little bit of a shift. Right here, God is promising there will be defeat of the one who caused the evil, caused the sin, caused death to enter. There will be one who is going to come who's going to crush his head. And so who is it? It's the offspring of the woman. There is going to be an offspring who's going to come and defeat the snake. Oh, there's some good news here. There's the promise of hope. And who's going to be that offspring? Well, if you think about it, it's like, okay, Adam and Eve, as soon as they leave the garden, they, they continue on in life and, th and they have children. Offspring. And maybe you know these two, Cain and Abel. The first offspring here is Eve's offspring. Is this going to be the one to crush the head of the snake? Jump with me to chapter 4. Here we see Cain and Abel. They're on the scene and, and they're, they're tending their respective fields of, of responsibility. So one is, is managing crops and that sort of thing. The other is managing flocks. And they end up coming to the Lord and they offer a sacrifice. Even though they're outside the garden, they still want to honor the Lord. They're trying to, to continue that relationship and they offer a sacrifice. 
Now, it was common in ancient days that there were uh, these different types of sacrifices, but some were, were more prized than, than another. Grains and, and crops, those were important, but if you gave an animal, ah, that signified something a little bit more. That was just kind of an assumed idea. So, we see Cain coming. He offers fruit of his crops, some of his harvest. We see Abel, he's coming in, he's coming in with an animal. And the text tells us that God showed favor to Abel. I appreciate the sacrifice you're giving. Like, this is good. Thank you for this. And again, everybody read that like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the greater sacrifice. But you know what happens, right? Cain's jealous. He sees Abel receiving some favor, and he gets jealous. But God responds to that. So look with me at verse 6 and verse 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Sure, I'm showing favor because I, I appreciate the sacrifice at Abel's, but if you're, if you're going to do right, there's still plenty of favor to go around. Will you not be accepted if you do what is right? Will you trust my character? That I'm good? that I'm gracious, that I have lots of favor to share. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See here, sin is almost pictured like a lion or some other kind of animal like that. It's crouching, it's hunting, it's gonna come after us and it's at your door. It wants to devour you. It wants to have you. Will you let it? And notice what, what God says to Cain. He's like, you need to rule over it. Just like creation. When I said rule over the earth, rule over this creation, don't let it rule you. Here is a choice for Cain. Will he follow through and be the one who overcomes sin, overcomes the snake and its power, Or will he fail? And you know the story. He kills his brother out of jealousy. He falls prey to the power of the serpent. He falls prey to sin. He commits that wrongdoing and plunges himself into the depths of it. So here, this promised offspring fails. And that's how it continues. We see in the rest of Genesis, the spiraling down. Every successive, successive generation is continuing the violence and the bloodshed. It's getting worse and it's getting worse. And even the bright moments like Noah and Abraham, they don't come through either. There might have been some measure of redemption, but they do not ultimately overcome the power of sin and therefore death. And it continues to be that. And so that begs the question, who, who is going to be the offspring? Because it wasn't Cain. It wasn't this direct descendant, somebody who would show up like, they fell short. Who is going to be the one to come through? Luke chapter 3 ends with a genealogy. I know this is your favorite part of the Bible to read, right? Genealogies, you can get to that. Like, oh yeah, I'm so excited to dive into this. But we get a genealogy. We get the genealogy of Jesus. 
And do you notice the way that Luke grabs the genealogy? Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. But I do want you to turn with me to chapter 3, verse 37. Let's see how the genealogy ends. Jesus, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What Luke is doing here is showing that Jesus is in this offspring line of Adam himself. And you're kind of like, well, isn't everybody? But here, what Luke is trying to do is not say something physical. He's saying something theological. Here, here is an offspring from Adam. What happens next is very intentional. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Ah, oh, this feels familiar. Temptation. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Okay, now catch that. Sure, he's been fasting for 40 days. He hasn't eaten, so of course he's hungry. But there's deeper meaning than that too. Here we are again, the temptation with food. This echoes back to the garden. Here we have the devil coming to tempt another offspring of Adam. And how is he going to respond? Turn these stones into bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And over and over again, Satan tries to tempt him, to deceive him, to to turn him away. and, And Jesus holds firm. What Luke is trying to tell us is that Jesus is the offspring. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who who survives the temptation, who overcomes and succeeds where everyone else has failed. And later in his ministry, when he collects some followers and people are kind of journeying with him, he sends them out and they come back. And in chapter 10 of Luke, we see that the 72, after they sent out, they're coming back and they're reporting what's happening. So in chapter 10, the 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I, I have given authority to you. I have given authority to you to do what? Trample on snakes. This isn't just like a physical, like you can walk across. No, no, no. He's saying something spiritual and theological here. The reason you have power over demons is I've given you that authority. You can crush Satan because of me. You have the ability to overcome snakes and scorpions, to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you because of me. Here we see Jesus. He's the one. He's the offspring. And more than that, he is the Savior who crushes evil, sin, and death. He is the one. And we get his words in Matthew 20, 28. He's like, the son of man 
came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you go back real quick to chapter three of Genesis, we saw the heel of this offspring was struck by the snake. He, he's crushing the snake's head, but, but the snake strikes his heel. It's like, oh, okay, what's going on with that? Now, you sense a little bit of the disparity, like he's crushing the snake's head, like it's kind of a mortal wound. But this is like, oh, he's, he's biting him. And what's going to happen there? Foreshadowing. See, Jesus came not to simply just overpower and, and show his strength, but he came in weakness. He came to lay down his life. He came to die, to submit himself to the power of death. Here, the serpent's bite grabs hold of Jesus, and he dies. See, Jesus came, that we celebrate his advent, we celebrate his birth, because he came to do something, to undo the power of death by dying. He came to give his life as a ransom for us. We can be set free from the power of the snake, from the power of evil, from the power of sin, from death itself. This is why Jesus came. This is why we celebrate a baby in a manger. He came to undo all of this power. And so we get the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's got this beautiful chapter on the resurrection and he ends it like this in verse 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death no longer has power. Jesus undid all of that power in his death and his resurrection. He sets us free. He is the savior who crushes evil sin and death. Church family, we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged even in the face of hardship, of challenge, of lack. It was really interesting for me this week to be preparing for this message while sitting with my in-laws. To be thinking about this reality in the depths of death and of loss. There is still hurt. There's still pain. We feel we feel that emptiness. But there is no longer harm. There is no longer power. This does not endure. The good news is that death no longer has the final say. And while it might feel like that's true at different moments, Christ steps in and says, no, no, no. I have the final say. I have taken away the sting of death. Sin itself is being eradicated. Now no longer evil does not reign. I do. And so wherever you are, if you're walking in like us, or you feel that sense of loss, 
you're missing a loved one. You feel that emptiness. Christ was born as a baby, grew up to give his life for us. Death does not have power. Where there's fracturing in relationships, there can be healing. Where you're not sure the way forward, like how do I connect all the dots? How do I pay my bills? How do I care for my loved ones? There is now power. There is mercy. There is comfort. There is hope. Because Jesus, he undoes the power of evil, sin, and death. It does not have the final say. So how do we integrate this? How do we walk through Christmas, whether we're in joyous moments or we're feeling the oppression, feeling the downtroddenness? I have two thoughts for you. First one comes on the heels of, of that Corinthians passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. What does Paul say after saying this? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He has triumphed. He has succeeded. It is not for nothing. So stand firm in him. Stand firm in him. If you know nowhere else to turn, you don't know what else to do, go to prayer. And say, Lord, help me, encourage me, be right here with me. Give me strength to stand on you. Stand firm. There are going to be moments, whether in Christmas time or otherwise, you're going to be pushed. You're going to be pressed. Things are going to come up against you. Will you stand firm in Jesus? Ground yourself in him. Stand firm. He has already withstood. He has already overcome. They, these things do not have power over you. So stand firm. Number two, we see in Romans that, that Paul is kind of describing the kind of life that we're to live. And he's like, you are now no longer slaves to sin. Romans chapter six, do not let your mortal flesh operate in this way. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So you obey its evil desires. Then verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of weakness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as one who has been brought from death to life. We have been brought from death to life. We have been set free. So offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. Be in line with him. Why? Verse, the next verse. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. You are under grace. We are not mastered by sin. We are not oppressed by it. We are set free. So live that kind of life. Pursue a godly life. We stand firm in Jesus. We're rooted in him. And then we pursue, we walk out our faith in him. We choose to follow his way. We're tempted to go to other things. We're tempted to operate in a different kind of way. Paul is reminding us, that's not our way anymore. You've been set free. Live in the way that Jesus calls us to. Live in the way that he showed us how. 
But even more than that, live by his power. Because we're dead in our sins. We, when you're dead, you can't do anything. He makes us alive. And that is by his power, by the Spirit's work in our lives. And so turn to him. Look to him. Show me the right way, Lord. Make that commitment. Pursue the godly kind of life. So, Jesus, he is Savior. And he saves us from evil, sin, and death. And he does it by crushing its power. He's the snake crusher. So we've got our, our image, our graphic each week. And, and what we want to do is we want to add an image each time we go through a message. And so here today is Savior. It's a picture of a snake. Now it's like, okay, Christmas snake. That doesn't usually go together. But here, hopefully you see the richness of that image. He crushes the snake. He crushes evil. He crushes sin. He crushes death. And that... That is all loaded up in the season of Christmas. So not only do we enjoy the calm, the peace that comes with Christmas. Sometimes it's not always calm. How do we withstand the turbulence when, when things intrude, when we, we feel that, that brokenness in the world? We look to Jesus. He has already crushed its power. It does not have say over us. He has fulfilled this role as Savior. So let's look to him. He's the one that we can trust. Jesus is the Savior who crushes evil, sin, and death. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you, God, that you are the Savior. You have taken away the powers of Satan. You have removed the serpent and its ability to influence us when we turn to you. God, would we turn to you? And would we find you faithful to destroy evil in our midst? To undo the power of sin in our hearts and in our minds? And to eradicate death itself? Well, God, we haven't seen the fullness of this yet come to completion. You promised to come back to bring it to fruition and to completely remove it from creation. God, we look forward to that day and we look forward with longing and hope. Help us to stand firm in you. Help us to pursue the godly kingdom kind of life where we do not fall to the power of the snake. And we stand with you. Thank you for this good news, Lord. Would it encourage us? Would it strengthen us? Would it help us to see your goodness in the world? We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.